Welcome back to PS Editor's Podcast. I'm Whitney Rana, Associate Editor at PS, and with me is Jonathan Stein, Managing Editor. Today we're going to discuss a topic that has plagued global leaders and international relations experts for decades, uh, peace and stability in the Middle East. Uh, joining us to discuss the challenges at hands is Tarek Osman. Tarek Osman is a PS columnist. He's the author of Islamism, What It Means for the Middle East and the World, and Egypt on the Brink. He's also a political economist, a broadcaster, um, and his focus is, of course, Arab, the Arab and Islamic worlds. Um, his recent piece for Project Syndicate is called The Arab World's Coming Challenges. Um, and in it, he basically identifies four key trends or forces that are likely to create new challenges um, in the coming decades for the Arab world. Those, uh, these, and all four, uh, you know, any, addressing any one of them would be uh, nearly impossible. And um, he, he lays it out very openly, uh, the scale of these challenges and, um, and the difficulty of meeting them. One is state collapse uh, in the Levant, the, uh, uh, the area of the Middle East, uh, that was uh, uh, divided up in uh, 1916 between uh, French and uh, British spheres of, in, uh, of, of interest and influence. And, um, and, the, and the heart of that, Iraq and Syria, are basically failed or failing states uh, and sites of, uh, of very serious and prolonged um, and, uh, conflict. Lebanon as well, a part of this region, uh, is is still defined by um, secular politics, often very uh, sectarian. Sorry, uh, politics uh, and very uh, very often violent sectarian politics. Uh, so you've got this state creation mm -hmm. uh, issue uh, in, in that region, which is also very affected by refugee flows. Exactly, and 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 those refugee flows are put, putting particular pressure on states like Lebanon and Jordan. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the Arab uh, Middle East and, and also in the wider uh, Muslim world on, uh, on Turkey, which has somewhere, I think, between two and a half, three million Syrian refugees now. Um, and uh, uh, Osman also turns to uh, North, North Africa, uh, where you know, some of the states have, sta have stabilized, Algeria, Egypt, Morocco, uh, have regimes that are repressive but broadly popular. They also have um, uh, well-functioning uh, mechanisms of, uh, of, of coercion and security to keep, uh, to keep people in line uh, who might be, uh, have, have other ideas about what those regimes should look like. But they have serious demographic challenges. So say more about that. I mean, the demographic yeah. challenges are really paramount because uh, I think he says there's something like 100 million young people coming into... The job market by 2025. Right. Just the job market in North Africa. Right. And so, you know, and he talks about how they're, um, because the education systems are so poor that many of these people um, are not qualified yeah. for the, the kinds of jobs that could, that could you know, raise their standard of living. So, the, you know, their best hope, for example, they could work in tourism, except the tourism industry isn't exactly thriving given, right. like, Islamic terrorism. Islamic terrorism, instability, same with construction and agriculture. These are, you know, the traditional, uh, you know, uh, sectors in which uh, low-skilled labor uh, can find a home. 
And, and some low-skilled labor also would find a home in the Gulf. Right. Which is this is a third trend that he yeah. identifies, right? That that that. And what's so what's happening in the Gulf? What? Why is why is why is this no longer the escape valve? Well, on the one hand, it's uh, surplus Arab labor. <laughs> Um, on the one hand, it's moving up the value chain. So again, it's the same problem. They're not educated. They don't have the skills that they need to um, work in, in higher level jobs, um, which is what the Gulf increasingly needs. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, the Gulf was, you know, it was construction jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, and they needed a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, foreign labor to do this. And that labor would send back remittances. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's, and that's all sort of going, um, going by the wayside. Uh, uh, these these um, these countries are now importing more workers, high skilled workers, uh, from the West. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know who go to uh, Dubai or Bahrain or wherever and work as expats uh, in uh, uh, industries that media and finance and so forth that require um, uh, higher skills than. Uh, than Arab workers from uh, North Africa and the rest of the Middle East have uh, historically been uh, been able to provide. But as Osman points out, the Gulf, the situation in the Gulf isn't exactly you know all roses either, because of these these tensions. You know, um, Saudi Arabia is in, engaged in this proxy war in Yemen. There's conflict now between um, Saudi Arabia and its like Sunni partners and Qatar, um, and so there's the potential for even more conflict there. And that's not to mention pressure from younger people uh, who want to see reform in these more conservative regimes. Yeah. And actually that conflict is the fourth trend, Osman points out, which yeah, is this conflict is, between... It's like this generational, uh, you know, this generational issue where on the one hand you've got kind of rising um, uh, Islamist radicalism, which, you know, in part affects young people, but you know, for the most part, young people are have been you know subjected to the same technological forces and uh, uh, and, and and developments in media as uh, as young people elsewhere in the world, um, and they're looking for a uh, a more enlightened version of, of Islam, a more liberal version of Islam, uh, greater openness. And so, within Islam itself, uh, Osman contends there is a um, a struggle brewing. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and that will um, that will be resolved. In the piece, you know, he 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 says one one thing that that should be borne in mind, uh, and particularly by Western policymakers, is to stop this. You know, to to um, sort of suppress the urge to just redraw borders. Right when you redraw borders, bound state boundaries, uh, it's almost always a recipe for disaster. Uh, state formation is a, often an ugly, brutal, violent process. No matter how much uh, it, it looks like it can be um, uh, uh, settled, and you've right? seen that with the Sykes-Picot yeah, agreement. But you see, I mean, you see, I mean, look at the partition of Pakistan and India. I mean, you know, millions and millions of deaths yeah. over over this because you get this unmixing of populations, right? Uh, and and so this is, I think, is what uh, what Osman is. Yeah, is, his fundamental focus is he says we need a socioeconomic focus rather than this kind of geopolitical. Um, redrawing kind of yeah, thing. and he says that even that that's not going to address any of these trends, but it could mitigate the the consequences exactly. of these trends. It could make it uh, make it easier if you start investing in primary, secondary education, small, medium sized businesses, um, renewable energies, 
the most successful uh, uh, Gulf countries, for example, like the UAE, recognized a long time ago that the oil isn't going to last forever. Uh, and they've moved, that's one reason why these countries have uh, started to move beyond oil and up, um, up the, the value chain. Um, so, okay, so let's... Let's uh, give them a call. Let's and give them a call and, and, and find out just are. how bad things are. <laughs> Hello? Hi, Tarek. Thank you so much for joining us today on PS Editor's podcast. Um, you're speaking to Whitney and Jonathan's here with me. Hi, Whitney. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. So we were just talking about your most recent piece, and we gave the listeners uh, kind of the rundown on what was included in there. Um, so we wanted to hear a little bit more from you, um, primarily, I, I guess, about kind of the solutions section of the piece, the kinds of solutions, I don't know how likely you think solutions are or what, which ones you think have the most um, potential to actually be implemented. Let, let's be let's be frank. You've provided Tarek a very comprehensive rundown of, of the entire region uh, and the and and these challenges that it faces. Any one of which would be very very difficult to address. It's a, I think it's a it's a really comprehensive, very um, uh, very enlightening uh, commentary on the situation. Um, and and. Yet there are no easy solutions, and you and you you admit this at the end that really the kinds of uh, the kinds of of, of 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 piecemeal measures that can be made now would really only um, work to mitigate uh, some of the consequences of of these trends state failure in Syria and Iraq, the pressures on Lebanon and Jordan, uh, the demographic pressures in North, uh, in North Africa, uh, the, the, the struggle within, uh, within Islam, uh, the, the, the increasing instability uh, in, in the Persian Gulf. Um, where do you start? Oh, you put me on the spot, I have to say. <laughs> um, well, I mean, things are already things are already quite bad right now. But I, I admit actually that if, if you look at the piece, probably 80% of it is listing problems and only 20% putting forward um, two or three potential solutions. And um, I think that in a way was dictated by the present actually, that to a very large extent, the Arab world right now is very full of very different problems, I will not repeat them, you, you summarized them perfectly. But to, to, to answer your first question about what can be done right now, and if, if, um, if I were to prioritize, you probably noticed I made it quite clear that my thinking is that whether people inside the Arab world, leaders or civil society communities, or in the West, whether in Europe or the US, or other important players, Russia, China, I think everybody should really prioritize socioeconomics more than geopolitics at this stage, because to my mind, the 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 really structural issues, the, the, the problems that could really make the situation by far even worse than than how bad it is today, are socioeconomic problems. You, you alluded to some of them demographics, uh, real major issues with regard to youth 
finding jobs in the next 10, 15 years, especially that the industries that used to absorb them will not absorb them. Regions such as the Gulf uh, that used to, to absorb a lot of people as, as emigrant workers or uh, people sending remittances back home, a lot of that will change. The Gulf will not continue to play that role. So if I were to put forward some of the solutions, I would highlight the three I tried to to uh, to put forward in the mm-hmm. piece. One, I think there needs to be a very serious thinking regarding the investment that goes into the medium-sized enterprises because lots of people keep talking about investing into small and medium-sized enterprises. Small in the Arab world is really, really tiny. And if we're talking about mass investments, then small is really tiny, really small. While the large players have been entrenched in the political economies of these countries, which also suffered a lot of corruption, a lot of blurring of the lines between power and wealth, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. So I think looking very seriously into what could be done to enlarge, to strengthen, to increase the competitiveness to provide capital, to increase the women participation into the end, into the middle enterprise, I think has a lot of potential. And in terms of of who would take the lead on that kind of um, investment, do you imagine it being something like national governments or external actors or private sector investing? Who who do you imagine would would take the lead in that kind of um, investing or, or reform? I'm a big believer in free markets. I, I do not like top-down economic <laughs> solutions because typically they fail, in my opinion. I think the the very simple search for profit that would lead private investors, whether from inside, let's say, a country uh, in North Africa or uh, an investor coming from the Gulf or investor coming from Europe or elsewhere, searching for yield, as they say in finance, searching for profit, searching for growing markets, I think you'll find the natural dynamics of of free market naturally gravitating towards that. But of course, the the important players such as the national government, such as international financial institutions, uh, such as strategic players, the European Union, for Mm -hmm. example, that provides a lot of money to, to these parts of the world, I think here is not necessarily required or I'm not asking them necessarily to invest into these companies not necessarily, but to help in putting the infrastructure right. For example, regulations, for example, mm-hmm. rule of law, um, aligning regulations in different parts of that region with best practice in other parts of the world. Basically, putting the infrastructure that would make it more attractive to regional investors or international investors to go into the end, into the middle. Another mm-hmm. point I was trying to refer to in the piece is renewable energy. Mm-hmm. People. Yeah. When they look at the Middle East, they forget. People usually get get sucked in the politics and the geopolitics of the Arab world, and they are frustrating, but also fascinating. But I think people need to reflect that at least in the last half century, if there is one factor that has really orchestrated or shaped even the political economy of almost the entire Arab world, it was oil. Even for countries that import oil, actually. Oil has really shaped the modern Arab world, at least in the last four or five decades. And right now, for many reasons, I think we are edging into the world of post-oil, more or less. And I think taking a very serious look at renewable energy, different types of renewable energy, and I will not not go into the technical stuff here, but that 
sector in general has, I think, major potential and extremely important to start looking at it because it can upgrade value chains in this part of the world. It can potentially absorb a lot of labor. And more importantly, it can prepare or potentially prepare the Arab world to really emerge out of the age of oil. Because if in the next 10 or 20 years the world moves beyond oil and the Arab world political economy remains hostage, if you'd like, to the economics of oil, the problems we see today in employment patterns, in, in availability of capital, in competitiveness, will deteriorate even in the Arab world. So that's an area I think people need to, to be very careful in to thinking seriously about. And finally, of course, the elephant in the room in the Arab world in the last five or six decades has been education. Uh, but I will not go into, into that too much because I think this has been a very long story and many people have, have written in it, but I, on it. But I think anybody trying to put forward any potential solutions for some of the socioeconomic problems in the Arab world today cannot ignore education. Well, I'm interested actually in that the connection between education and um, talking about moving to renewable energy, how, you know, if we're talking about... Um, that yes, say young people don't have the education to pursue higher skill jobs and that sort of thing. The idea that to be shifting um, at the same time to be shifting the economy toward these more advanced industries, um, doesn't it, it seem like education is in some ways a prerequisite for that? Or, or do you think that they can be pursued in tandem? Look, I think the problem of education actually does not is not unique to the Arab world. Uh, you, you look at many countries in Europe even right now, and the level of unemployment rising within graduates of universities, even graduates of post uh, or postgraduates, is is very rising simply because there is a mismatch between the the classic skills and the classic outcomes of educational systems mm -hmm. in different parts of the world with the, uh, the jobs that offer any kind of social mobility right now. So it's not only unique to the Arab world. But, but you're right. If you are going to think about post-oil, uh, about renewable energy, about how to increase the competitiveness of medium-sized enterprises that could potentially employ hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people, then, of course, having some sort of educational system that prepares the tens of millions of young Arabs coming to the job market in the next 10 years to these kinds of job is uh, is a no-brainer. But it's, mm -hmm. it's easier said than done, to be very honest. If you tell me what would you do tomorrow, I will, I will struggle to, to give you three steps. <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are quick wins that I can see in some of the, of the large uh, countries in the Arab world, Egypt, Morocco, uh, Saudi Arabia, because there has been many attempts to improve education into these countries in the last 30, 40 years, and I'm quite aware of some of them. But in order not to dwell too much into, into that issue, you're right. There is obviously a link between, between these two issues. But I, intentionally, I mentioned education, education last because it has been the elephant in the room in the Arab world for at least half a century. And of course, the, sorry. Go. I was only going to say, while the other two issues of, of how can you realistically modernize a substantial or, or at least a serious percentage of medium-sized enterprises in the Arab world prepare the economy for the post-oil uh, world and looking at renewable energy. I think these are relatively new challenges that mm -hmm. policymakers in and outside the region ought to think seriously about.
Uh, and of course, I'm just going to throw a, a spanner into the works and introduce another complicating factor for uh, uh, Middle East labor markets, which is simply uh, technological innovation and automation uh, reducing the number of jobs even further. This is not a, a trend that's only going to be confined to developed countries. It's also going to affect uh, developing countries more and more because that labor is no longer going to have to be performed anywhere in the world economy. So uh, to, to wrap up, uh, Tarek, uh, thank you very much for being here. You've, you've painted a picture of both uh, very high risk, but also uh, uh, real potential opportunity. Uh, and uh, I think you've given listeners um, much to consider, and we're going to continue covering these, uh, these issues uh, at Project Syndicate, and I'm sure we're going to be getting more contributions from you as well. Uh, th Thank you so for much. having me. So I, I thought it was uh, really interesting. I, th I thought I was a bit surprised when um, he mentioned initially uh, free markets as being kind of the, the, the spearheader of these, these changes. Um, I mean, he later then pointed out the importance of um, governments and, and other you know, higher level actors in creating enabling environments for investment and that sort of thing. But, but I, I did, it did strike me. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the uh, late political scientist Samuel Huntington wrote a very famous book uh, called uh, Political Order in Changing Societies. And he had, you know, a line in there that, you know, uh, uh, you have to establish authority before you can limit it and uh, political authority. And this really seems to be the, the, the challenge for, uh, for these countries. How do you establish a, a legitimate political authority, which all citizens of these countries uh, feel some sense of obligation? the institutions and the rules. And he did go into this, um, uh, you know, it wasn't simply, well, you know, uh, atomized individuals seeking to maximize their returns will naturally create spontaneous order. I don't think that's what he's saying. He did emphasize the need for uh, 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 government provision of this kind of infrastructure, not simply electrical grids and sanitary systems. But regulations. But regulations, yeah. the, the software, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the uh, enforcement of, of, um, of, of, of property rights and the rule of law, mm -hmm. the provision of adequate physical security, all of the kinds of things that are going to have to happen in order for any investment to, uh, to take place. And it's even, I think it's even notable that, I mean, at the end, he, he mentioned that Egypt as an example of a country that has done some, or you know, made some progress in educational reform, or at least tried to engage in some educational reform. And it's also a country that he points out in his article is one that, you know, despite the challenges, the, the ruling structures do have some, you know, broad popular consent. So it does kind of reinforce that idea that the, the closer a country is to having a more, like, legitimate leadership with with actual authority yeah. the, the that's that's the country that's going to actually have a chance of implementing some of these um, solutions that he yeah. proposed i'm sorry that we couldn't that we couldn't go longer and discuss more this this the you know this issue with uh, automation and imports from 
uh, you know, the advanced countries that are going to place additional pressures on um, on uh, Middle Eastern societies and labor markets. But you know, this is these are you can't cover everything. It's certainly not all <laughs> Middle Eastern challenges right. and conflicts. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, but I think we 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 covered enough. Yeah. Um, that's our show for today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Um, be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. I'm uh, Jonathan Stein, Managing Editor of Project Syndicate. Thank you for listening. And I'm Whitney Rana.